0: listening to the Feed the Ball Podcast, I'm Derek Duncan, Architecture Editor at Golf Digest, and this is Episode 77 with Craig Haltom. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your listening pleasures, and while you're there, leave a star rating and review. That helps promote the podcast and put it in the eyes and ears of more listeners. An even better way to help is to send or link the podcast to those you know. If you listen to the Feed the Ball Podcast or the Feed the Ball Salon Podcast with Jim Rubina... You'll know that the art, engineering, and intuition that goes into building golf courses can have incredible impacts on how the architect's design turns out. As you know, there are different ways courses can be built. Not all architects get their hands dirty and participate in physical construction. Alistair McKenzie was not driving teams of horses with scrapers. In fact, he often wasn't even around when the courses he designed were actually being built. And with the exception of a handful of courses, Donald Ross operated much the same way as Robert Trent Jones did, or Tom Fazio does laying down the plan on paper with detailed instructions, then relying on contractors and associates to make it happen, checking in occasionally on the progress. But there's a special place in our hearts for designers who also build, who not only conceive of golf courses conceptually, but also engage in shaping and equipment operation. This describes Craig Haltom, president and architect for Oliphant Golf in Wisconsin. Halton got into the construction end of the business after living in Scotland for several years, getting an advanced degree in landscape architecture. And since the mid-2000s, he's overseen the projects Oliphant has been contracted to build, working in the dirt with the shaping crews. In the last several years, he's become increasingly active in designing golf courses as well, leading, for instance, the renovation of Stevens Point in Wisconsin, and also creating the 12-hole 12 North course at Trapper's Run, along with Andy North. Last year, his full 18-hole design at the club at Loch LaBelle opened, a broad and highly entertaining design featuring some of the largest and most adventurous putting surfaces found in modern golf. Haltem is also busy overseeing the construction of the Lido at Sand Valley, with Tom Doak, Brian Schneider, and Brian Slanick of Renaissance Golf, which is the faithful reconstruction of CB McDonald's extinct Lido course on Long Island. We'll discuss that project in detail, including how GPS-guided bulldozers and elaborate mapping systems are being used. You can also go to GolfDigest.com and search Lido Sand Valley for my recent story on the course's construction. Helton also oversaw construction support for the first Sand Valley course, as well as for Mammoth Dunes. He'll explain what it was like working alongside Bill Coore and David Kidd, how he discovered the Sand Valley property and took the idea to develop golf there to Mike Kaiser, and much, much more in this long conversation. Haltem is a fun guy to talk to, he's got a great dry wit, and he's done just about everything there is to do in the golf business, from designing, to shaping, to being a superintendent, to club operations. He's part of the team that manages the courses at La Sonia. So stay tuned for this entire discussion, all the way through to the end, because Haltem becomes a more and more fascinating person the more he discusses all the different ways he's been involved in golf. So let's get straight to it, you'll enjoy this one. Here's my talk with Craig Haltem.
1: we start over then sorry because the sprinkler what was your question i'll,
0: I'll edit i'll edit this so it sounds seamless Craig.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you just saw what i saw the uh the, the windows open in this um glenway is this little municipal course and and it's got a little window where you can um like hand somebody a uh drink or their scorecard that's it like the caddyshack window yeah and the sprinkler is just coming full blast inside that little window going inside the, uh, inside the clubhouse
0: here. Shooting ducks in a barrel, fish in a barrel.
1: (laughs) Now I see why the floor is wet.
0: (laughs) Maybe a small adjustment is needed on the sprinkler. Maybe
1: we'll adjust that head.
0: Noted. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So, so so anyway, your question was the question had had to do with,
0: with scale and, um, is the Lido I, I get, you know, in, in my conversations with, with you and other people and having seen it, you know, that scale is going to is going to be used to describe the Lido, you know, it's on a, it's on this grand scale, you know, we haven't seen this, uh, this kind of scale, you know, it's that's what's so impressive about it. But it, it, I, I sense that there's something more important going on than just the Lido being a large, broad golf course. So what is that beyond scale that, that, that is making the Lido, you know, such a special project or was such a special golf course?
1: Um, well the, the scale, um, it feels big when you're out there. And I think part of that is because the boundaries of the course are defined by the tree line. So it feels a little bit like a big cleared area inside of a forest and, you know, that when you're, when you're standing in the middle of it, it makes it feel like a, um, like a giant space, but the footprint for the Lido is actually much smaller than the other courses at sand Valley. And is actually not that large compared to most modern courses. So maybe the story of the, the scale out there is that, um, the site itself, um, if there's a big scale to it, it's because of the design of the features and the way things pull together. So, um, when you're, when you're on the ground playing the golf course, of course, none of us have played it yet, but it feels, uh, when you're walking out there, um, the greens are gigantic, the bunkers are huge and deep. So there's a, there's a bigness to the scale, to the golfing scale of it. And then, um, because of the way things tie together, I think the site actually feels bigger than it, than it is in reality. So um, you could just say that's probably another mark of good design because um, because when you're out there in the middle of the site, you're kind of immersed in it, and it feels like it's it's um, it's endless in a way that real links courses do. Like St Andrews, just feels like a sea of kind of frozen waves and grass, and that's the effect that you get when you're standing. At Lido, even more so than the other golf courses at Sand Valley, which are very wide open and connected and have that same rumply ground. But um, the way it all ties together at Lido makes you feel like you're seeing most of the golf holes at the same time. And and um, yeah, I get that comment a lot when people come out. They say, "Wow, this is gigantic," and uh, in reality, it's actually much smaller than some of the other golf courses out there.
0: Yeah, I just think that that term "scale" is it demands a little more. Uh, attention or, or precision, but it ha- but it does have to do with optics in, in some degree. It's it's not just a matter of, you know, you say, that, you know, this golf course is built on a large scale. That means one thing, but it, it has to do with, as you just said, how features and, and what you see, your, your optics, how they relate to other things that you can see, what's in the foreground, what's in the distance, what are the perimeters, what are the boundaries, what are the textures that's happening along the way. And that, that's definitely an impression that I got when I saw the golf course just being built is it it does you do feel like you're in a vast area, a vast playing space and, and you can see the power of seeing across a landscape is, is is something that that's quite powerful that's often not an experience that that golfers get typically these days, you know, there's usually something broken up. And for for a long time, golf courses were, you know, a uh, high ideal was, you know, every golf course was its own thing. It's compartmentalized and isolated, you didn't see any other holes. But th- that that sense of seeing across property and seeing distances and seeing what's what's to come, adds to this sense of, of scale, I think. So it's, it's almost like it's as psychological as it is physical.
1: Yeah, and the, the evidence of that is, um, you know, it's been the trend that Uh, old golf courses usually start completely wide open if for no other reason that they're um, it's new construction land gets cleared and you don't have very many trees. And then over a hundred years, like you said, the, the thinking for many decades was to isolate each hole. And, you know, we've worked on several uh, renovation projects or restoration projects where we've taken out hundreds and thousands of trees and, While there's a lot of resistance to that at the beginning, or people are anxious about what what the golf course is gonna be like um, after the tree removal, almost universally, everyone responds well to it. You know, Once the work is done, um, you start to see an entire property in a way that you never had before. So anyone that's playing on a traditional golf course that's tree lined, there certainly is a place for that type of golf. And I'm not saying that every golf course should cut down all of the trees, but it's been my experience that um, you, you know the, <laughs> the trees that you might characterize as the separation trees are the trees that are really just there to block your view of the rest of the golf course. Once those are removed, um, the golf course almost always improves. And on top of that, um, you could make a strong argument that, that, you know, you shouldn't be playing in and around trees anyway, if you're playing proper golf in the way that, that it was understood, you know, in Scotland where you're playing golf on the ground. So there's also a whole nother element of making the golf course more playable and, um, and, uh, but the thing that, that good golfers and bad golfers tend to respond to most is that you can stand on in places on a property where you got no views whatsoever. And suddenly you can see everything as an example, right now, I'm standing, um, in the little clubhouse at at a nine hole municipal golf course in Madison called Glenway. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's right in the middle of a neighborhood, um, and has a beautiful, it's just nine holes. It's a small property, but, um, has a beautiful Oak forest surrounding it. And, um, we're doing a renovation here. And one of the first things we did was, was remove a limited number, but you know, quite a few what we would call nuisance trees or trees that were just planted on the sides of fairways and they won't be missed. Um, even though the neighbors were, were anxious about what we were doing, the, the end result by removing, um, you know, maybe 40 trees we've opened up views to this beautiful Oak forest through the property. So now you can see almost everything from the clubhouse and, um, you know, people, people come here and they think that we've, uh, reorganized the entire property. And the truth is we've just kind of uncovered some of the natural contours and more dramatic parts of the property that, that you just couldn't see from, from, you know, the different spots in the golf course. So, um, you know, sometimes removing trees is also about getting better views of the trees that you want to see.
0: But since you since you brought up Glenway, this is the golf course. This is the public golf course in Madison that uh, Michael Kaiser has really driven the the renovation of the rebirth of this golf course. Can you speak a little bit more about what's happening there and and who's doing the work and uh, how that golf course is turning out?
1: Yeah. So um, Michael uh, lives in Madison and uh, just knows Glenway from from playing it a few times, I think. And his thought was uh, that. You know, the the municipal courses in Madison could be greatly improved if they had interesting greens, um, you know, if you could introduce some neat architectural features and some um, put some design work into improving, you know, the existing courses as they are. And um, uh, he's generously donated the funds to get this work done at, at, at the nine hole course at Glenway. So it's been closed all season. And Michael put a team together of people in the, uh, golf industry, uh, golf architects that have a connection to Wisconsin. Um, and we've, we started in may and have, uh, completed all the construction and are now growing grass, uh, you know, growing all the greens and we redid all nine greens, all the teas, uh, added a few bunkers and we've regrassed the fairways to a combination of bluegrass and fescue. So, um, the team that michael put together is myself brian schneider uh, sarah mess brian schneider uh who works with tom doak and is right now very busy at the lido um finishing up our construction season there but uh, brian's come down and um contributed greatly to the overall design and then also uh put some time in shaping several of the greens um uh, brian slonic from renaissance golf also came down and and um and put some time here, uh, on number three, green and number five, green, uh, Sarah mess is a, was an intern for Tom Doak a few years ago is a school teacher in Madison and has always stayed active kind of on the edges of golf architecture, um, doing, uh, book editing for Tom Doak. And I think various other types of projects like that, but Sarah's right here and she's been out every week, helping me lay out teas and greens and offering her, um, wearing her architect's hat, you know, between, between, uh, uh, you know, her, her real job. And, uh, it's been fantastic. So the the goal here was to build a golf course that, um, everybody can play, but that, that from the beginning was really designed around, um, uh, beginners, uh, and anyone that would come and have a great time on a real golf course with real par fours, real par threes and par fives, but they're, uh, they're small holes. And, um, what we've tried to do with the greens is just, um, they went from little ovals, maybe, uh, two or 3000 square foot, small circles to, we have a couple greens out here that are 10,000 square feet, um, Not a lot of wild contours but something completely different and interesting green surrounds so i think everybody's really pleased with how it's turned out um we're growing grass now and hopefully we'll be you know on time opening uh in the spring next year
0: this is kind of the million dollar question but you know, this is an exciting thing. It's a municipal golf course that's being re-injected with life and a new character. And the way you've described it, especially the the large, you know, some of the, several, you know, ten thousand square foot green, which is huge, will change the character of the course and I think be fun to play. How difficult do you think it is for for municipalities to do something like that to their golf course? Now, not everybody will have a benefactor like Michael Kaiser, who is, uh, from what I understand, basically funding the project. But but just from a, a cost perspective. Uh, you know, is it how difficult is it in your experience to go in and and take a, a a modest golf course and inject it with life? So it's, you know, and give it a, give it, you know, clear trees, whatever you have to do, you know, uh, new, some new turf and irrigation, but just, just kind of change the character, change the narrative of that golf course to, to make it more appealing to a a broader section of people. And maybe even visitors who come into town and want to play it. Is it cost prohibitive or is it something that if done correctly, you know, a, a A city or a county could could faithfully take on
1: um you know at some level almost all golf course work is cost prohibitive in that it's it's just expensive you know and um but saying that is it within uh you know is it is it possible that something like glenway that we're doing here and some of the other uh cool projects that are happening at municipal golf courses um is it, is it on a scale that if you, if you had the will that you could, that you could uh, change the character of a golf course by redoing greens and bunkers and tees? Yeah. Every golf course, um, you know, the entire experience can be changed. If you're, if you're rebuilding greens, then, um, you know, there's no limits to how, how good it might be. Uh, so, you know, I've been fortunate to work on a lot of renovations that have been, um, more um, Probably better described as reimagining or rebuilding on top of an existing golf course. And um, so I've seen how these renovations don't necessarily just have to move a, a project sideways, in that, you know, maybe the greens don't, aren't, maybe the bunkers don't drain anymore. Maybe the greens are in poor shape and there's something, you know, s- someone might think it's related to the, to, to, you know, the, the, the greens are just tired and need to be rebuilt. A lot of renovations will you know in my opinion move move things sideways in that you'll refresh the bunkers you'll refresh all the features so that they will be up to modern spec if you might you might say that but it's a missed opportunity if you don't introduce some type of interesting design and all of that into the into the project so i would say there's unlimited potential for golf courses around the country to kind of come see places like glenway see what was here and uh the money that was spent and and figure out if there's a if there's a will to do it in other places i think um you know it's been our experience that people respond really well to interesting golf architecture so if you can do it you know you you can you can point at all these examples that had a might have had a uh uh Made a, may have plateaued on where they were going to go for participation, and has a little golf business. But post renovation, if it's done right, uh, can really introduce new life into some of these places. Um, you know, at Glenway, where I'm at right now, as an example, um, you know, we've we've also included a public putting course. Um, it's not gigantic, but it's right next to their little um, uh, clubhouse. And it'll be free and open to the public. It's right next to a bus stop. So our hope is that anybody just walking by will come check it out and hit a few putts and that people in the neighborhood, this golf course is right in the middle of a large neighborhood, um, we'll use it as kind of a community hub and grandparents taking their grandkids out just for putting. That's, that's what the hope is. So we, we think it's going to be quite busy. Um, I should have mentioned, you know, like again, this team that's worked on Glenway Um, Michael threw out the idea that, you know, what good ideas or throughout the challenge to say, what good ideas could we fit into this small property and, um, beyond Brian and Sarah and myself, uh, Jay Blasey, uh, Andy Staples, Andy North have all contributed to the design here. And all of those guys have Wisconsin connections. And, uh, Jay Blasey, as an example, identified an area up by the clubhouse and said, wouldn't it be cool if we did a putting green? or a putting course here. So we can barely fit it in, but we've done it. And I think it looks great. And, um, yeah, not every project is lucky enough to have a Michael Kaiser to say, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Um, but I think there's some lessons here and at other cool projects that, um, you know, could inspire other municipalities or other, you know, every golf course to look hard at how you might, um, bring people in.
0: We'll jump back to the Lido in a minute, but while we're on this topic, you know these are ways to engage, uh, sometimes even non-golfers in golf, or a way to present golf. Just kind of put it out there and say, you know, golf isn't just about you know having to hit the ball far and straight. You know, you can come out here and putt on this golf course, and all you need is a putter and a ball and have fun for you know thirty minutes, an hour, whatever. Your kids can do it. All these things are great ideas to to show all of golf's different sides. Some places are doing it really well, and one of the coolest things uh, that I've seen uh, you were involved in, and that's the the, the big putting green at Journeyman Distillery uh, it, it, that you built. And it's not even a golf course, but it's this huge Himalaya style putting green that is out of a context of a course. And yet, t- talk about that! I mean, this is just people go to this distillery, or people from around town just can walk up and 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 have you know, have one of the greatest putting experiences in the world with the contours. Yes.
1: Yeah. To me, it's the best example of this type of thing that we're talking about, uh, next to the Himalayas and St. Andrews, which I, I, I lived in Scotland for a few years and we were lucky to go to St. Andrews a lot. And my wife and I would go there on Sundays occasionally. And, um, it in the new course clubhouse sits next to the, uh, the Himalayas, the putting green. And on Sundays you would see families there, um, you know, coming to have lunch and then going out and putting and, and I didn't see a bunch of golfers. You know, I saw just people having fun with their families and I thought, boy, that's great. And then many years later, um, the, the closest example to that I've seen is that journeyman distillery in three Oaks where my friend Bill Welter, um, has built this incredible, uh, uh, whiskey distillery business, um, and Bill's a golfer. And he had the crazy thought of doing a uh, Himalayas style putting green in the back, butting up right against this cool old factory. So, um, and he's lucky that he has a friend that builds golf courses. So, yeah. uh, so I, so I, so that was, I'm not gonna remember the year, but it was probably four or five, eh, three or four years ago. And, um, when it first opened, I think people thought it was a curiosity and and kind of wandered out there a little bit but now several years on it's busy all the time and people just they have a great time um, and it's and it's like I said I, it's not golfers you're going there to a distillery I mean I'm sure there's golfers that end up there but a, the lo- a lot of golfers better... like
0: to drink whiskey just, <laughs> okay, I don't know yes. if anybody realized that but it's true so- I think that's
1: probably true. So so let's say there's a large amount of golfers, but there's also a large amount of uh people that maybe haven't played golf at all, but they're going in the back of this distillery and having a great time. And um that you just pick up a, a putter out of a barrel, um, you know, of used putters and it's it's been great. So the the interesting thing about that is or that green is um we built it right behind the factory so when we for the first scoop of dirt was i was pulling out basically the old factory just bricks and and garbage and um you know we thought well w- let's not break the bank building this thing is there any solution that we can figure out and i was coming right off of uh sand valley where we had we call it flipping where you turn the the there's a little bit of topsoil at sand valley that naturally exists from the you know it it was a complete site with uh pine plantation over the top of it so over years there's there's a little bit of residual topsoil and we actually don't want that so the first thing we do is turn the little bit of brown stuff over and bring all the sand to the top across all the golf courses and um that's the approach we took at the distillery but instead of burying a little bit of topsoil we buried you know a hundred years worth of bricks and rubble and whatever and it's turned out to be a pretty free draining base for Hmm. the sand that we put on top of it. So, um, let's just say that there was no, uh, guarantee of success on top of that. You know, it, Bill has to grow. It's real grass. Bill has to grow this thing and water it. And every time I go there, it's in absolutely perfect shape. And, uh, he's been fortunate to have a few superintendents that live locally to come out and give him some guidance and put some work into it. But I give him a lot of credit and I joke with him to say that he's not just a master distiller. He's also a master greenskeeper yeah. and, um, and it's a lot of fun. So, and it's really, you know, visually, it's a cool thing to, to, even if you're in a, at an event at the distillery, when you're looking out the window, if you're not a golfer, you just see this beautiful lawn you know, that kind of wiggles around the back. And, um, yeah, I think, I think it, I I don't know if people go there specifically to see the putting green, but I think it's been, it's been really popular for them. And I, and I, and I think it's right that it might be the only green of that kind that's not associated with the golf course, which is interesting.
0: And that's another idea that I think is, would be something fantastic to explore, you know, like a city you know has a downtown area with with green space or it's a a parking lot that is underutilized and you know if you get if if there are restaurants or shops in the area you you get a lot of foot traffic i would love to see a city convert that into a just a large putting green you you know with with free access you know you walk up with your kids you're walking by on your way to dinner that night or you're you're waiting waiting for a table your kids go out to the putting green and put around for Fifteen minutes, come back, and you know it's it's probably there's some cost involved, obviously in construction and maintaining that, but the I think the payoff and the dividend and the enrichment of the the community and the not to mention the good it would do for the image of golf. I mean that would be worth a, a city or a town kind of taking it taking a shot at. Um, there's a lot of urban areas, parking lots around there and spaces that aren't being utilized that I just see a lot of Himalaya style putting greens out, out around
1: (laughs) me too. (laughs) I see them everywhere. The uh, no, I think it's, I think it's right. So that's a call to everyone when they put out public comments for municipal projects, all the golfers should chime in and say, have you thought of a putting green? I mean, the thing that's neat about it is um, you know, people of all ages in particular shapes and sizes and and all of that can have a great time on a putting green, um, whether you're a golfer or not. So I think it doesn't pop into people's heads. Uh, Probably the first thing that, that, um, you know, one reality to it is that you have to keep the grass alive. Um, and you have to maintain it. If you don't have a golf course attached to it, that becomes uh, a little harder, but, uh, these are things that can be figured out. <laughs> <I agree>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but I think it's a great. It's a. We'll see. I think. I think this will be a great example of among many. But a, a putting green right here at the corner of a busy intersection with a bus stop. We'll see if people love it, you know, and and use it.
0: That's a great idea. So so let's let's we got we kind of got off the Lido. Uh, I, I want to circle back to that because it is such a great story, and one of the aspects of it is obviously. And I'm saying this. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are are quite familiar with it, but there will be people who maybe only have kind of a one foot in the story. But you know, the Lido was a golf course that existed from 1914 until the the mid 1940s, really, when it was uh, reclaimed by. uh, It was basically like demolished by the uh, the the Navy used it during the war, and then it was turned into housing and uh, ceased to exist. But it was one of the most famous courses of its era, built by C.B. McDonald. Uh, Seth Raynor helped him engineer the golf course and c- it was considered one of the greatest um, You know classic American course some some thought it was was maybe the best in the country at the time went out of existence uh, The the kaiser family has decided to resurrect it in exact form at sand valley uh, And the the way they're doing it. So that's one aspect of the story is is this It's kind of been this white whale out there for a lot of people. It's been talked about being recreated for years uh, it's sort of like uh let's let's clone a, a T-Rex and bring it back. And now we're actually doing it. It's kind of that it's golf's equivalent of Jurassic Park. And it's being put together now in exact form or as 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 best as as we can determine from uh aerial images, uh land photographs, the plastic model that McDonald had built of the course. And and that's the story is is getting it precisely right. There's no artistic uh, liberty. They're not saying, well, I you know I don't think CB got that hole quite right, so we're going to change the angle of the dogleg or we're going to add some bunkers here. It's no, it's exactly what was built as best you can determine it. And the way it's being done is is really part of the the other half of the story. In an effort to get this golf course precisely correct. Uh, There are all these layers of kind of technology and computer technology and animation, and and there's a video game aspect to it, as we as we said before. Uh, Why don't you I want I'll I'll turn it over to you at this point. What was the what was the the key turning point uh, in your experience working on the project being the build the course builder that you said, wow, this is, you know, this is something completely completely different and completely unique and completely enthralling uh, to be a part of.
1: Um, well, I remember it's, it would have been a couple of years now, but I remember Michael first talking about maybe doing the Lido at, at, in Wisconsin at sand Valley and my first thought, which I think was a wrong one. I thought, well, why here, you know, we have all this beautiful land. Um, but, but you know, my head was just on original golf courses and, and, and where do you go next, you know, for a new golf course. And, um, but then we went out and but then Michael said that he'd already talked to Tom about it. And Tom's comment was he would only do it if there was zero interpretation and that we felt like you could you could get it completely right to the extent that you can, you know, without knowing every single thing. But, um, you know, once Tom had, you know, voiced that commitment, I thought, wow, well, that's really something. And, um, you know, and if not at Sand Valley, where where would it happen? because I think um, even though there's been some other uh, Lido-inspired golf courses and and golf holes built in other places, no one's really done um, anything like this. So very early on, it was clear that Michael and Chris were, you know, determined to get it right. And Tom wouldn't do it unless we, you know, all pledged that we would get it right. And uh, the third thing that made it seem like it was, you know, it could actually work out was that um, Peter Flory, who is an amateur golf historian, and I'll call him a golf course architect, even if it's just on a video game, um, because he makes these incredibly photorealistic and extremely rich and well thought out virtual golf courses. in. I'm going to forget what the name of the game is that he uses, but it's got tiger woods on it. And, um, it's easy to dismiss, you know, that as kind of a amateurish thing, but it's not, it's an extremely powerful tool that builds these 3d models. And what Peter did, um, was research the Lido so thoroughly that he had triangulated all of the buildings and, um, all of the landmarks that you might see in all of the historical photos that exist. He created a 3d model that was as photorealistic and as well-researched as you could possibly expect. And the end result is, um, you know, everyone looks at this video game and says, boy, if we could go build that, that really would be something, you know, that looks like the real deal. And, um, so with that confidence, the only thing to figure out was how to take, uh, Peter's, model in a video game and turn it into something that we could produce on the ground. And um, you and I uh, talked about it, Derek, there's really no innovation to using um, GPS uh, technology in any type of construction, farming or golf course construction. But I don't think any of us understood the resolution that might be possible coming out of a GPS bulldozer, if you really pushed it. And if this is the important thing, if you had a remarkable model going in, usually you would never have such a complete and well thought out model down to the inch. I mean, the little contours around the greens and everything, um, you just wouldn't have that because it takes hundreds of hours. And I mean that literally to produce something like that. And, um, so with that, we, uh, well, it's interesting. The, the backing up. So, so we, we did eventually get that plan into the GPS bulldozers and that's our first pass on the golf course. We put the plan into the, into the bulldozer. Our guys go out, they, they put it to Peter's model and then Tom and his team take over and, um, stand there with all the, uh, historical photographs and information that we have and do their thing as, 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 as the best golf course architects in the world, they're, um, you know, just like CB McDonald was in his time. Um, they're trying to faithfully reproduce this golf course. And then also without any interpreting, um, they're so skilled at doing what they do that the golf course looks, um, completely ancient and like the real deal from right now, if you go out there right now, I am completely convinced that I'm in Long Island. You know, it's, it's really, striking, but the backing up to the GPS process, um, we were very fortunate to have already to already know a gentleman in Rome, Wisconsin, uh, Brian Zager, who also has this background in golf course design in a, you know, for virtual, um, simulators. So Brian had made a living, um, going back to the beginning of high quality golf simulators and and recreating golf courses or creating new golf courses for some simulator company. And he did that for years. So, so he's very good with that technology. And then we, um, Brian was on the crew filling divots, um, and was interested in the project from the beginning. So he was just on the maintenance crew. And then we approached him and said, is there any way in your mind that you could take this video game and, and how do we get it into the bulldozers? And what Brian came up with is some type of program that took the, the video game model and took hundreds of thousands of measurements and then produced those into the did hundreds of thousands of spot elevations. You might say, then took those and, um, From that, we were able to produce a topo map that could be fed into the GPS on the bulldozer, and then we set the bulldozers loose, and what was surprising to me at least, and I think everyone else, was the the extremely high degree of resolution that we were able to achieve, even on the greens. I mean, I had never thought that GPS technology would be any type of application for greens contours or bunkers, Um, but – it wouldn't, it it would never be the project that the Lido is going to be because of all the talented people that are working on it. But for the first time I thought, well, if you were as good as Peter Flory, you really could, um, build a golf, a fantastic golf course through this medium. You know, you could think it out through in three dimensions and get really close. And, um, you know, that technology has existed forever, but no one's ever pushed it to this resolution and, Um, and done such high quality work as a, as a baseline, you know, the the cliche is garbage in garbage out and any type of data and the limiting factor for using GPS and golf applications would be, you know, if you've just done a plan with a bunch of four leaf clover bunkers and some kidney beans and that type of thing, and you put that into the GPS bulldozer, that's what you're going to get. What Peter produced was something that virtually looks and plays like, a real CB McDonald golf course. Well, like in this case, exactly like a real CB McDonald golf course and to everyone's great surprise and relief. Um, you know, we had a great first pass, um, just based on the GPS work. And then from there, Brian Schneider and Tom Doak, um, have done their tweaks and interpretations. And in some cases, there wasn't complete information on the putting green surfaces. So, you know, in those instances, you have to trust, trust the best golf architects in the world to make the right decisions. Um, I'd also include Michael Kaiser in that category. Michael's right there as owner and, um, and as the final say on all of these features and, and, and really is rolled up his sleeves. And you could say is a working golf architect in this context, for sure. And trying to help us all make, make sure that we get it right. So a lot of people involved and a lot of high quality work that went back years before we even started anything on the ground.
0: If if someone did have the the skills of Peter Flory or, or acquired those skills and was willing to to put the time into building a, cre- a virtual creation of a golf course of their own creation, an original design, and then was able to program at the way you did at the Lido into these bulldozers, would that save a developer money? I'm assuming because the bulldozers are so efficient. If you take away the, the time put into building the virtual model, it, it would that be a more efficient way to build a golf course than what's typically done in 99 out of a hundred cases.
1: Uh, it, in 99 out of a hundred cases, it would probably produce a better result than, than a golf course that was well, let me say it this way. There's no skipping the hundreds of hours. You know, the thing that makes that makes doing the Lido possible in the way I just described is that Peter Flory put on in all this incredible work. So I would, it, it's a little different in terms of the Lido, which is a complete restoration and, and recreation, um, of exactly what was there. If Peter were to start over and do a brand new golf course out of his, you know, out of just a creation out of his mind, which I'm sure he's done, um, you still can't skip the step of of making that model great. So when I describe it to people, I say, well, I don't think there's a broad application for this technology beyond, or, or it's limited by the number of Peters there are out there because it's a very rare skill to do something so well. And in that case, you might consider Peter like a shaper. You know, in our world, shapers, which I am sometimes call myself too, you know, you're out there building the actual features and, um, you know, you can't skip steps on that. If the person isn't talented, the, 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 you're not going to end up with something very inspiring. And it's the same for Peter, you know, he's particularly talented. So in the medium of a, you know, a digital creation, it, it, you still have to, you still have to do that work. So to answer your question on whether it's more efficient, I think, yes, in terms of as a first pass, you can just blow through it. I mean, if the GPS bulldozers are set up, then you could let a crew be very efficient in putting everything exactly to that starting point. And then I would just tell you that, um, you know, the golf course improves by degrees in the amount of time you're willing to spend after that, after that starting point. So super efficient to get to the starting point and then,
0: but, and then it's like um, every other build. You and it's the like every other the more golf course finishing details you can put in the stronger you can finish yes. it. The better the golf course is going to be.
1: But if I was, if I was going to advise someone just generically on, you know, does this have any, um, application beyond Alito or anything like that? I think it does. Yeah. I think it, I think it, it probably does. One interesting, um, result of this, this process is that I think a light bulb went off for Tom in that, in that, um, it works in both directions you can you can build from a model that that someone has created in this world and then you can also capture and archive whatever is on the ground as as we're out there building it with bulldozers so at Lido we, we start with Peter's model get that um, looking great and like I said it's super high resolution so it's not clunky or Or, you know, the shapes look like real shapes. If you, if you'd grasped what Peter produced, you'd say, that's a great golf course. But then when Tom comes in and Brian comes in and they make, they turn a 10 into an 11, you know, they turn something really good into, into great. um, Usually that work is subject to the wind and however fast we can get right behind that and lock it in and grass it. So Tom makes a visit Uh, approves the greens and then it might be three or four weeks before in the sequence of construction we can we can completely grass it uh, or longer and one thing that we identified in this process and maybe other people are doing this I don't know but um, we went back out and measured the or archived with GPS equipment, um, the changes that Brian and Tom were making to the Greens. So they could, we could start with the GPS model, make Tom and Brian's changes, then put those back into the GPS model. So if Tom was coming back, and this happened several times this summer, if he's coming back two months later or a month later, we we just go through and we started calling it, just sweeping it up. You know, We just have the GPS dozer go through one more time and it's like putting it right back where it was uh, the day Tom left. And that I think is pretty exciting, maybe not exciting to, Everybody listening to this, but to construction people and someone like Tom, who you know his days on site are precious, and certainly don't want to lose all the work that you've done um, because it blows around or it gets washed out. Uh, it, I think, there's a real application in it for that. In that, in that, Tom can go to New Zealand, shape 18 greens potentially in one visit, and. Uh, he probably would come back, but if if something happened and he never made it back, you'd have all of this great work locked in and who knows what people will do with that idea you know, like I said, maybe people are already doing that, but that was a new application you know certainly that I didn't think about and I think um I think we'll we'll use it there's a you know one practical consideration is you know the g p s bulldozers they're expensive and all that um, but I think you know, how could you put a price on being able to lock in, you know, Tom Doak's green with certainty um, that you're going to get it right when you you put grass on it.
0: hitting command save, like right after you're done. It's exactly
1: like that. And it it really is. It's worked like that. You know, Um, when he goes back through and sweeps it with the dozer, if you can imagine, there's an operator in the machine, he's doing his thing, and there's some amount of interpretation, but basically you hit a button. And if you watch it from the side, you can see the blade ticking up and down um, you know as it's following the contours and down to four or five inches, you know that type of thing so um, so yeah, I mean there there's there's that application. there's the idea that it might help creatively on some of these sites. Um, it's been around forever, but maybe maybe people will find all kinds of new ways to use this technology.
0: We were talking in another conversation about uh, you you mentioned that Brian Schneider was talking to you about how impressed he was of the actual design of the Lido and how when he saw these shapes come to life for the first time, um, it was even eye opening for him and and he's somebody that's been you know he's seen as many golf great golf courses as anybody alive worked on most of them too so and it, it made me think that there's a, a difference between going around and and seeing the National Golf Links of America or or seeing you know, piping rock or seeing, uh, you know, St. Louis or any other, you know, great old McDonald golf course and studying it and familiarizing yourself with it the, the, the shapes and the sizes and the ideas. There's a difference between doing that and then actually building it, you know, getting inside of it and, and creating the foundation and, and rising these shapes out. And, and, and that was something I think that you related to me that like Brian was sort of like that, even that, method was sort of eye-opening to him to actually see these things come to life it's sort of like the difference between being a medical student and studying the anatomy and then being the surgeon and actually making the cut for the first time you know that's a big jump what what have you and you've built golf courses all over the country for for you know on your own as your own as a designer you've you know worked for with Kyle Phillips or Tom Fazio um other people other designers now now doke is there something about this Lido project, seeing it come alive and and helping build it that has changed the way you look at building golf courses or something that you'll kind of take with you going forward on future construction sites?
1: Uh, For sure. So the, I talked to Brian um, Schneider and Brian Slonick, who've done all the shaping at Lido about this a little bit. And they both kind of describe the experiences like, channeling, uh, CB McDonald in a way, um, because there's no interpretation. We're really trying to build it exactly like it was and including down to the fairway contours and the way that the golf course was drained. So when you're on a dozer and like I said earlier, Michael Kaiser put us all on the mission of getting this 100% right. No interpretation, no, um, you know, to the extent that we actually ripped out a green, um, that some new information became available said i don't think this is quite right so we took the irrigation out and moved the green um when it was already built so so everybody was on this mission to get it 100% right which hole was that those, by the way? can you oh i'm not going to tell you which hole that was oh, come on <laughs> <laughs> more because i can't remember all right yeah um, right no no it was um i think it was 14 that just shifted uh like 15 yards. I mean, not a big change, but, but when, when I think it was Brian standing on the tee saying, I don't think this is quite lined up.
0: Mm, That's the short hole,
1: the short hole. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's often the case, but the end result, even though that was painful, I don't, you know, no one wanted to, to, to do that, but, but certainly worth it. And that hole is just spectacular in it's finished form. You Mm. know, it's just, it's as good as you could imagine it could turn out. And so, so when you're, so when everyone's that committed to doing it without interpretation and, um, and when you're there actually doing the work, it, if you're on the bulldozer and you're trying to, to, um, to, well, it's like I said, they both kind of mentioned channeling CB McDonald, which I don't know. It, 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 in a sense, you're, you're just along for the ride. If I could say that, you know, you know, where the golf course has to be. So as you're pursuing these drainage channels on a bulldozer, at least in my, you know, for myself, you're seeing some kind of curious and interesting ways in which these, um, great old golf, you know, long, long dead golf course, architects, uh, solve problems on sites. And when you're doing that, you know, through replication, I think you, you just have time to to take that in in a way that that you don't when you're doing your own stuff, you know, when you're just completely um, free to go in any direction. So it's been a, a year-long education probably for everyone involved. I mean, these guys are as good as it gets, and we're already the authorities in restoring me, McDonald work or Seth Rayner. Um, you know, you'd have to ask them, but I think they probably have an entirely new uh, appreciation for and complete understanding of the kind of construction realities that went into building these courses because um we have all kind of just been on CB McDonald's crew building this golf course in in a lot of ways i mean that's been the mindset mm-hmm. so um so yeah uh, one example for me like at Glenway we had the idea that we would um on the fourth hole here we we did a a, a inspired by but pretty much replica of the 14th hole at royal royal dornick which is you know the very famous foxy Foxy, hole which is held up as an example of cool greens contours around um you know flattish green but all the interest is in the contours around the green and um you know how much do you take on in the context of Glenway, where we think some of these holes are played as par fours for you and me, but are played as par 15s for a lot of the people that are, that are playing golf out here. So it's got a lot of interesting stuff. So it's just a good fit and it happens to fit in the, in the spot where it is now. But for me, um, we didn't have the GPS dozers out here, but I did the, the poor man's version, I guess, which is just to put my iPhone on the, the, right in front of me in the cab of the dozer. And, you know, the little blue dot that you use to, to tell where you're at, you know, going home, just have that on laid over a, the topo of the original, hmm. um, hole in, in or the topo, the actual topo from Royal Dorneck. right. Which Brian Zager also provided, <laughs> you know? So, so Brian got me the topo. He needs for, a raise yeah. by the way. Uh, you know, it's a remarkable thing. Brian is going to go on. Uh, he's just been offered an internship with Tom Doak. It's just fantastic. So who knows where Brian's going to go, but he, um, you know, has always had this interest in golf courses and did this stuff with the, with the video games. And now he's had, you know, all these years of building actual golf courses. And I think, I think he's found a spot with Tom and, and, with that process that I just described that you could lock in things, you could double check it's so it's really interesting. So, but Brian also provided the data for this 14th hole. And even without the, all the bells and whistles, just using that as a guide, I think we've pretty much have a, 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 at least very inspired by version of that hole. And, you know, doing that, I understood what, the two Bryans were saying about their experience at Lido, because when you're there following exactly, um, just, just, uh, what would you say? Like paint by number type thing. You, Mm -hmm. you, you, you get to see how these, um, you know, how old golf architects solve the problems of how greens drain in different directions and all that thing in a real, in a real way that you, you don't get if you're, if you're just, studying that in theory or in books. So I don't know if that makes sense, but the experience on the machine, when you've actually got all the information, you can build it exactly the way it was. is super interesting. And yes, I think that will stick with me. Uh, you you turned yourself
0: into a GPS guided bulldozer.
1: Yes. And I could see myself doing that, uh, over and over again, you know, it does, it does, uh, you know, bring up the question of what's appropriate. I don't want to be out here plagiarizing um, you know old Tom Morris's golf complexes or uh, Donald Ross or anyone. but you know all of these things are done uh, basically as a tribute to to the great work that was done by all these guys a hundred years ago
0: and most great work um, in any art form or any industry is stolen anyway. There's a long tradition of that.
1: Yes, and there should be. If you're gonna,
0: and if you're going to plagiarize, plagiarize from the best.
1: Yes, and if you talk to Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw, you know they would they would tell you that there's essentially nothing new, and we're all just out um, copying at you know at, at various degrees of resolution um, these great old golf courses. That's right, or you should be.
0: So. You know, Sand Valley is a very special place to you, and it. You could maybe somebody could make an argument, maybe you could make an argument, or I could that it wouldn't exist if it weren't for you. Actually, one thing that I think happened sort of like around the time you know maybe Band and Dunes was opening and Pacific Dunes was it, it it triggered something in the mind of architects and and developers and uh, maybe some some really smart observers in in the media and elsewhere that the key to this success the key to this these type of golf course the sand the sand hills and the and the pacific dunes and the bandon dunes is sand and it just kind of it, it didn't really click for decades before that it didn't really matter but then it initiated sort of like this global race this sand rush across the globe for for mm-hmm. great sandy properties if they're by an ocean even the better i feel like you kind of got that bug too or you were picking up on that around that same time Tell us the story about how you searched for the Sand Valley property.
1: Um, so, yes, I think you're right that, that if you go. So that time would have been around. Um, so I was in Scotland in school. I did a graduate degree in landscape architecture in Edinburgh and then spent most of my time going to see golf courses. And that was in 99 and 2000. And around that time was when. I think Sand Hills opened not too long before that and Bandon Dunes opened around that time. But yeah, I mean, that was, it was a new thought that people would travel a long way to the middle of nowhere. And, and, and particularly in big numbers. And that was all happening at that time. When I came back from Scotland, um, you know, I was primed after seeing all these links golf courses and, um, and then realized, not, I'm not from Wisconsin, um, but we've lived here probably 15 years now. Um, didn't realize that a lot of the state was so sandy. There's a sand belt right through the middle of the state. Um, and But none of that type of golf, really. No linksy or anything that you might say takes advantage of that sand base uh, or not very much of it. So when we moved to Wisconsin in 2000, I was really lucky to look up golf course builders in the phone book. And there was one literally in the phone book under G, you know, for golf course builders, there was Mike Oliphant. So I went to see Mike got a job and was lucky again that Mike had three or four jobs locally, um, around Madison at that time. So my first three or four years in, uh, building golf courses, I was able to stay around home. Which is rare, you know. But we had work there, and then at the same time, while I was trying to learn how to build golf courses, I was out looking for land that I thought, you know, could could you find a place that would be so remarkable in you know a sandy spot in Wisconsin that people would come to it like abandoned dunes? So yeah, I but started that search. Did you know search. at that time
0: that that there were large sand deposits in the state?
1: only I didn't know how, you know, going back to that time I had, you know, we'd like hiking. My wife and I, um, we didn't have any kids at the time. And, but we would take our dog and go, um, to natural areas. And I, a lot of around the Wisconsin river and, uh, there's some beautiful sandy areas with all the same vegetation, cactus, prairie flowers, um, scrubby oaks and pines, I saw that landscape right away and I thought, boy, this, this would just be perfect for golf. But there was very little elevation change or there's something missing there. So I started, you know, just recreationally sort yeah. of just hiking with my wife. Noticed that, yeah, a lot of the, the state has some spectacular sandy areas. And then again, this was a long time ago, but 2001 really started identifying those spots on a map and making a point to go spend several days at each of them exploring. So
0: how how did you identify them on a map?
1: Well, this is going to sound like if this was, I was doing this in the, in the thirties, but you know, I <laughs> guess it has been a long time now. There was no, any aerial photos of Adams County, Wisconsin, which is not, you know, a major population center. um, were extremely grainy. So I had, there wasn't really Google earth or anything like that. There weren't high quality images. So what I used, was, or for rural areas anyway. So what I used was a backroads atlas, um, for Wisconsin. And there was a symbol on there that, um, had a two, I remember like a pickaxe and a shovel and those, that's the symbol for quarry. And if we were in a sandy area and I saw a bunch of those shovels and pickaxes, we would just go see that area. And almost every time that was a great indication that, that we'd like what we saw, you know, um, So I went to see, went, went looking for sand quarries and then, um, you know, progressively made my way up the state or north, um, through the state and, um, ended up in Rome. Uh, and I remember, you know, vividly coming around the corner on when I was at the site that was became sand valley in seeing these giant sand dunes, they were covered with trees, but you could see that this was okay. Here are like real 80 foot tall sand dunes. And that was probably 2010. So we're talking about a long time. So you've been doing this for
0: like nine years.
1: Not, I mean, on and off. I mean, it had, you know, there were times where it was very intense and then, and then there were times when it just seemed like there was no hope, but through all of it, for whatever reason, I was certain that this golf course was going to get built. And, um, so, so yeah, so in 2010, I I remember seeing those sand dunes and thinking, well, if you, if you can't do it here, this, this is it, this is the spot. So it went from trying to find it to how would you develop it? And, um, you know, at that time I was working for Mike Oliphant as, uh, you know, a project manager on small projects, I was getting a little bit of, you know, design work and doing, Build a tee here or that type of thing. So I was I was busy doing a lot of golf course work, but um, I took Mike Oliphant out to to this spot and said, "What do you think?" And he was blown away, and um, you know, immediately figured out a way
0: to put an option on the land. So then now, we were able to hold to, I that I don't land. mean to interrupt again, Craig, but when you say this land, did you have any idea like how large the property was, or did you, did you have it kind of in your mind at least narrow down to? you know, 300 acres here, which was the approximate size of a good, good golf course or like, so what, what, what are you envisioning? What, what, what are the yeah, this parameters is gonna, <laughs> of the property that you're seeing?
1: This is going to share, this is going to show the limits of my imagination, but yeah, <laughs> I was very focused on that first 300 acres. Cause I thought, my God, we'll never be able to afford anything more. Which you know, is which what
0: part of the resort right now.
1: It's actually where, well, it's the center of it is right at, uh, Craig's porch appropriately I guess that high point is right where I was always uh-huh. uh focused and 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 that's that's where the first golf course ended up going that's where Bill and Ben uh selected the first golf course but there's as you've seen there's many other great sites you know it, surrounding it there's what a, yeah, a lot things, of good land what's there. going to be Sedge thousands Valley. of acres thousands of acres so but I was focused on this one spot that seemed like not necessarily the best, but possibly the most dramatic or, you know, it just, I just thought this is where we would go. So it was a good eye earliest. Well, yeah, I I will give myself credit for that, that I did. I have (laughs) accurately predicted where these courses have gone in terms of the big map that I would have first presented to, to Michael and his dad saying, here's where I think, you know, one, two, three, four go. That's roughly how it's gone. Um, And that's, not really a credit to me it's more of a credit to well it's, It says more about the site in that these ar- architects have all picked they've had the pick of the entire site and they each picked a distinct area which is great without which override. you
0: identified before they did yes i'll just point yeah, that out well,
1: <laughs> you would too you know i mean I, i'm saying in some ways it's there's just endless possibilities i mean it's beautiful in any direction so these um but I was focused on that first chunk and then, and then tried with Mike Oliphant for a couple of years. This was again, during the complete, you know, well, the financial crisis. So 2009, 2008, 2010, all this is happening. And Mike and I are kind of sliding, uh, pro formas to people and they are just looking at us like, you gotta be crazy. You know, no one's even going to play golf anymore. And, um, you know, it probably ended up happening the only way that it could, um, that if you want to build this type of golf, all paths lead to Mike Kaiser, because they're the only people that, um, that have the will and, and probably the ability to pull it off. And I, and, and that's an interesting story because, um, so, so we had, we had, we had tried with some success, but not enough success to raise money to get it to get it done on that first 300 acres. And I remember getting a call from my buddy, Greg Ramsey, who, I don't know if you've ever, do you, do you know Greg at all, Derek?
0: I've never met him, but I know who he is. And um, But explain to the listeners who he is. He was very instrumental in this whole process.
1: Yes. Yeah, so Greg is a remarkable guy. You know, I've never met anybody like him, but he's, I met him when he was a bartender at the old course in St. Andrews. <laughs> um,
0: and you, you, know, you were a, a regular. He,
1: <laughs> know else. uh no the the real connection was my buddy well actually we just my friend bill who went on to build the putting green at the distillery met greg they were both servers or or they were both just doing jobs we were we were all 22 or 23 years old you know so they were just working in the bars and my buddy bill uh I can't remember what either he moved in with Greg or Greg moved in with him. I can't remember, but they they lived in a little flat in St. Andrews and I would go visit them. And through my friendship with bill, I met Greg. And I remember, you know, at the time, Greg, he was, he had started the process, but he was right at the beginning of, of his plan to go back to Tasmania and turn it into uh, one of the biggest golf destinations in the world. And he was very explicit about that from the beginning. He said in very specific terms, this is what I'm going to do. This, these are the sites around Tasmania. It's spectacular. And I'm going to go back and and it's going to start with Barmbool. And that's what he did. He went back after our time in St. Andrews, Greg went back, um, convinced the landowner, uh, maybe he had already convinced him at this point, but, but the went back to Tasmania ended up building what I think is well, I don't know. It's as good as anything that, that, um, I mean, World Dunes is really a great golf course. And, um, and that all started right after I met Greg in St. Andrews and, um, they hired Tom Doak and I think Michael Clayton and they built this great golf course. And then now there's a second golf course. And that all started with Greg, um, identifying this, uh, you know, spectacular piece of, uh, Linksland, you know, in Tasmania, and convincing the owner to pursue it. The connection to Mike Kaiser was that Greg uh, was a young guy, wasn't um, able to get it over the. I going to say finish line, but I think starting starting line um, with the funding and uh, through I think Tom Doke, Mike Kaiser became avail- or became aware of Barnburgel, came down and saw it, and provided either the the some funding or at least the will or the confidence to the, the landowner there that, yeah, this could really work. And this 22 year old isn't crazy. Right. And, you know, you should try it. So all of that was a tremendous success at Barnboogle. And obviously, you know, as I say it out loud, that, that was very impactful for me because I came back to Wisconsin, not being from Wisconsin kind of primed with that same idea, I guess, you know, Hey, well, Greg did it. Could I go out and find some land and, and that's what happened. And, um, but going full circle, it took Greg's intervention again, (laughs) because, uh, we had not raised enough funds to get started and Greg, I'd always stayed in contact with him because we were both working on golf projects and remained friends. And he said, how's it going? And I said, that's not going very well. I don't think we're going to pull it off, Greg. So, said, well, why don't you come with me to see Mike Kaiser in Chicago? I'm coming in a month and I'll just take you up there. And so that happened. I went to see Mike Kaiser in Chicago at his office with Greg, uh, put a bunch of pictures. I think I had a flyover video that I had done similar to Peter Flory. I had done this whole thing, you know, with the whole golf courses laid out. And Mike didn't, wasn't too interested in that. He looked at the photos and said, you know it looks really nice but i only build on oceans you know i my formula is sand ocean and great great architect and um so it was a no you got one but, of
0: the three right
1: now you got one of the three <laughs> maybe cuz he hadn't even seen it so we had some photos of sand but but we had one of the three and but mike's a nice person and what he did was send josh lesnick out from kemper sports to to scout it a bit i gave josh a tour and you know, we got up on these big sand dunes and Josh reported back, no, this is pretty neat. And then Michael, Chris, and Mike Sr. came in November, I think, of 2012. And uh it was all covered in trees for the most part, but we walked, we had cleared trails and we walked the whole property. And I don't know that they decided to do it on the flight back, but um we started right away and the types of environmental analysis and checking out the water and all that right away. And Mike sent some people from the field museum in Chicago immediately to do an assessment of what the, you know, it's, it's a big pine plantation. Is there anything here that can be restored or what's the, what's interesting about this land? And they came back with the verdict that, you know, you don't have an ocean, but you have this ocean of um, potentially restored rare habitat in the Sandy scrubby pine barrens that have largely been erased in the Midwest. So armed with that, Mike got excited about golf with no ocean. And, you know, it's gone as fast as it could possibly go. You know, that was, we started some type of construction in 2013 and then, you know, we're here now with three golf courses, going to start a fourth, probably a par three course. And that might be the end of it, but there's really no ceiling on, I suppose, how much golf could be out there.
0: Yeah. And there's, that's a, as an aside, that's kind of another element that maybe a lot of golfers don't realize is that there's so much acreage out there, thousands and thousands of acres that the Kaisers own. And, and a large part of their vision is to restore probably most of that to some sort of natural prairie state, what it was before it became a timber forest.
1: Yeah. And that's happening, you know, quietly they've they're restoring thousands of acres. So if you, if you want the 30 or 50 or hundred year vision for the property, uh, you know, golf is always going to be a part of it. And maybe the, the main part, but the, probably the legacy will be that all these thousands of acres are restored to some type of public park. And, um, that's already happening at the resort in that, you know, dream golf the kind of golf that you play at Band Dunes still exists at Sand Valley. It's it's just fantastic. The turf is it's real links turf. Everything is great. But what Michael and Chris have done at Sand Valley is introduce some element of alternative activities: fat tire biking, hiking, bird watching. Um, you know, y- you get the idea when you pull into Sand Valley and the first thing you see is a gigantic garden. You know, and so all of those kind of alternative ideas they're doing and they're doing it in a real way. And the non-golfers are coming there and enjoying the property as just a, just kind of an escape. And I think that will grow over the years. They're just now starting to open up for winters with all kinds of, you know, snowshoeing and, and some type of, and, and lots of programming with, with, uh, um, I don't know what you, I know they had a, they had uh, some yoga and breathing type um, uh, programs last year that were very successful. So I would expect that, that <laughs> okay. Sand Valley will end up being a busy place all year and golf will always be the main thing. But it, it could really grow into um, a place where, you know, everybody has, has something.
0: Yeah, right. So you, you are, in addition to building golf courses with Oliphant, you are also a designer. Was there ever um, what were the conversations like with the as this as Sand Valley got off the ground about your involvement of it? Uh, I know, probably, I'm sure you were like, I really want to design the golf courses, but um, I'm guessing that given the Kaiser's you know mo that 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 was never on the table. But wh- how what were the discussions about how Oliphant and Craig Haltom could support the project on an ongoing basis? How how were those that re- how did that relationship develop into what it was? Because Oliphant provided the support. Uh, of the construction of sand valley and mammoth dunes
1: yeah so um one of the characteristic things of mike kaiser you know people who know him and, and will describe him is that he's uh is complete clarity in his thinking when you're talking to him and he um you know he's very good at at laying things out so the almost the first sentence that came you know as i'm talking back to that meeting in chicago as i'm you know i'm meeting mike and i'm extremely nervous you know it's like this is this whole thing that i've got uh these many years of searching and wrapped up into and i didn't have any expectations that mike would be interested but i didn't want to fail that day you know and and i wanted to give it our best shot so as we're presenting these things very quickly mike looks at the pictures and he looks up at me and he says well i'm not going to do it but if i did you know uh I'm going to hire Bill core and Ben Crenshaw to design the first golf course. And I'm going to hire Kemper sports to manage it. Are you okay with that? And I mean, this is like the first sentence <laughs> and,
0: um, to your Just point, kneecap like you right away.
1: We're going to, <laughs> well, in a good way, <laughs> show you who's boss you know, right now. <laughs> the worst thing would be, uh, yeah, Craig, maybe, yeah, maybe you can, uh, we'll see how it goes. No, yeah. it's the opposite. He says, look, I'm not going to do this in the first place, but if I did, Um, this is how it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I guess I had the presence of mind sitting there to say, you know what, Mike, that sounds fantastic. Of course, I have ambitions to do all kinds of things and I would have loved to, uh, and have gotten the opportunity to do a lot of neat design things, you know, but I knew right away that that experience, however it looked would just be, um, fantastic. So I was grateful that, Um, you know, I would find a place to plug in, which is in supporting the construction, you know, beyond that, at the very beginning, obviously it was just me, so I was tour guide, um, You know, doing some of the preliminary, all the preliminary work on the ground, running around and that type of thing. I was involved as a project manager from the beginning on everything because there simply wasn't anybody else as the resort grew, or at least there started to be some shipping containers and some staff you know, it was no longer me running to get the sandwiches, but, but that's the way it was for the first few years. So I got this, um, you know, I don't even have to say it. It was the best professional experience you could imagine. You know, I was, um, it was happening, um, you know, with, with Mike Kaiser, the, 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 the most accomplished golf course developer and, and a person, you know, that anyone would, uh, be thrilled to, to, to meet in any capacity. And here I was able to be working intimately every day in getting this thing started. And then it only got better when, when they hired Bill Core and and Ben Crenshaw to do the first course, you know, Bill and Ben are famously known for wandering around a golf course site for potentially years, you know, or, but certainly it's an extended process. And, you know, we had constraints in that we wanted to start the following season, but, um, Bill Cor had enough time to go out for almost a year to, to whittle away at the routing. And, um, if you know, Bill, you know, that he's an extremely gracious person. Um, but, but, but Bill's just great. And he allowed myself, Michael, Chris to tag along on a lot of those early walks. Well, all of them really. So endless amounts of time wandering around pine forest with bill Cor, um, where he's, uh, I'm not going to say that he was taking input from us because I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far at all, but it certainly felt like at the time that bill Cor was being very generous to say, what do you guys think? What do you think of this? And then also to say, no, that's a bad idea. And, and all that. And of course I had my routings, you know, the original things where I just tried to put something on paper to be a a visual guide. None of that really made it to the final cut, but it certainly has served me well. you know, as I continue to work on these golf courses, I had, how would you describe that? That's a, that's a graduate degree Mm -hmm. in building golf courses that, you know, I think, I think Bill does that, um, with everyone that he encounters, you know, you spend any time around him, you're going to get better at at working on golf courses. And that's been true for uh, these subsequent golf courses and architects. David Kidd was fantastic to work with and um, a completely different style, but so much to learn from David. And then now what with Tom at the Lido. Can
0: you, can you sort of like us at least as, you know, mapping out a routing for instance, what were the differences?
1: Um, I would say that David's approach is much more analytical not over the top, but he's certainly more concerned with yardages, the types of shot variety and, um, and, and, and David had a very, I'd say preconceived and brilliant, really vision for the golf course. And that mammoth dunes was going to be mammoth in every sense, like completely unlike anything else, just gigantic. And then also that all the features would, would, um, would feed into the idea of giving golfers confidence in the fairway that they could hit a shot into these greens. And what that means in practical terms is that a lot of the contours are helping instead of, so instead of, uh, what would you say? Con instead of convex.
0: Yeah. Repelling r- receiving versus <laughs> repelling.
1: Yes. inies versus outies. Yeah, so right. David has a lot of collecting contours and bill has plenty of that, you know, on his golf courses, but I think you'd probably characterize them more as, there's a lot of false fronts. There's some crowns false edges, th- false
0: backs, <laughs> false
1: edges, that type of thing. So a real contrast in that way. And the lesson from David among many things was, okay, if you really want to deliver a golf course that has a completely different experience. And I think mammoth is that there's nothing else like it. I've never played anything like it. And, um, you have to be completely committed to that vision. And one example would be, uh, on, what's now the 16th hole. It's a beautiful par three, it's downhill. Mm -hmm. There was also an alternate green site to the right, which, you know, when Michael and I were standing there, I think, boy, that looks like the green that's gotta be the green. And you can convince yourself of those things when you're out there and you're spending all these hours, you can just say, this is, this just has to be the green and David, uh, you know, looked at these two options, one green perched up, you know, beautiful green. But then there was this other inviting location, uh, in the spot where the green is now. And I remember David saying, that's a great hole. I agree with you. You know, that's, that's wonderful, but we're not going to build that hole here. We're going to build this hole. And, you know, it t- that, that type of commitment, you know, through all 18 holes is what is how you end up with mammoth dunes, which maybe will never be repeated. Um, I went to gamble sands before we started mammoth dune and saw and saw that, you know, that David was moving in that direction. That's a very friendly golf course. Beautiful great golf
0: course. So fun. great
1: golf course. Um, I'd say mammoth dunes, you know, again, is the, well, I won't characterize it. I think it's a, it's a, it's another achievement in that, in that, um, in that way. You, you, you could say that, 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 no, I think Graham, I was I was going to say, I, I, I don't know if mammoth dunes is better than gamble sands, but it does. But you can see a progression where when you end up with mammoth dunes, you have this golf course that David was completely committed to doing this type of golf course. And I can't imagine that anybody is ever going to be handed that opportunity again, to build 150 yard wide fairways, you know, the such interesting features. There just aren't that many properties that where that's a realistic opportunity, right? So what was his rationale
0: a, for shifting the green to the lower one, just because it was a more receptive shot or, or uh, it did fit with the theme of the golf course versus going from, you know, T to a high point.
1: Yeah. I mean, my understanding from talking to him is that his, his, he's, the first thing he's focused on is getting people feeling good over the shot they're about to hit. And that's 99% of the, of the deal. You know, if you feel, if you stepping up to a shot and you can see it and you feel like, you know, there isn't a triple bogey, you know, on the edges, you you hit a, you swing better, you hit a better shot. And, um, and obviously you end up having a a more enjoyable day. You you know, if you commit to that, you may have to sacrifice some, what appear to be naturally spectacular spots for a green, but you've got to, you know, but in David's case, he's, he's, Following a design theme, so he's he's picking naturally beautiful and spectacular spots, but but places that also fit into that idea that I'm going to stand over this shot and have complete confidence, and therefore I'm going to hit it square. And and there you go. And, and then when you play it with people, you you see that over and over again. I mean, people can describe it as an easy golf course. I don't you know no golf course is really easy, but um, what is true is that people often shoot one of their best rounds. At Mammoth Dunes and call that whatever you want, but it's a lot of fun, and um, you can still shoot a high score, obviously. But uh, but I'd say he executed on that vision completely, and and there it is, it's a really really neat golf course. You, you asked me to come, c- you know, contrast Bill and David's approaches. I, you know, Bill is also, I'm sure, pursuing. Well I mean he has his own visions for what the golf course will be, but i but I, part of that wandering around on the site is has i think more to do with letting things evolve and you know present themselves uh, and what you end up with is is uh these two very contrasting golf courses and and again, you know that's another success of the Kaisers is that they they continue to build these resorts where the courses are so different from one another with Lido being another example, Lido would be totally different from anything else at Sand Valley. And for that reason, we'll probably just fit in perfectly
0: there. Yeah. The Lido is going to be different than anything. And it's interesting because that you you talk about the great assets of Sand Valley property and all, even all the areas that haven't been developed yet. Tom Doak you know, did a routing for a Perspective third course or now fourth course that'll I'm assuming will be built at some point, but that's a different piece of topography. But the Lido site, you know, was chosen for its how flat it was basically. You know, it was just like going to be a canvas upon which to to lay this golf course where you could build everything up off the ground. Um, so it, it has it all really.
1: Yeah, and 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 who knows what the future there or I mean, there's another interesting ideas if you if you gave. And I suppose this has happened in some places, but if you if really deliberately gave these great golf course architects a completely flat piece of property, what would they produce um, with no limitations? That's what's made the Lido so compelling, is because from its start, it was a blank canvas and a blank check for CB McDonald to build whatever he wanted. So what we're building right now represents, um, you know, I'm sure there were constraints during construction. But basically that's, uh, whatever, whatever he could come up with in his mind, that's what they built. And, um, yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, maybe that's again, a flat site, the video games we're talking about all of that, maybe there's, there's something there to it too, or you could take a very unremarkable site and have a better, uh, be, be more assured that you would end up with a super interesting golf course. Mm -hmm.
0: Just going back to Bill Corr and the routing, uh, since you were the bird, on, the proverbial bird on the shoulder for so many rounds or walks around that property, did you get the sense that primarily what he was doing was trying to identify locations for greens? You know, there, I'm, there's a million different ways you can approach routing a golf course. I'm assuming, but you know, one way is uh, on a rich property like that is sort of locating perfect areas to site greens and, and seeing where the next tee is. After that, was that? a big part of his methodology do you think
1: yeah i mean i wouldn't know what percentage to put on it but it's a it's the main it's the whole ball game is where it's finding the green sites and then working backwards and on routing these golf courses obviously there's there's decisions to make and compromises you can't fit them all in so so you know in my observation with bill he's he's finding you know many remarkable green sites that, that you feel like have to make it to the final cut of the golf course. And then, and then of course you have to tie all those things together. So, you know, I can tell you, as you probably know that there's no consideration to par or very little consideration to par or any type of balance, you know, between the nines or any of the traditional things that you might think, um, it's completely driven to what are the golf holes, you know, as they are on the ground and, if that ends up with two par threes in a row or, you know, four par fives on the front nine, that, that wouldn't even have been a consideration to the point where two years into the project, if someone asks, what's the par out here, I'm not, I, I can remember, no one could really, everyone has to stop and think for a minute. Okay. I think it's 71, you know, it's just no consideration at all. So, um, so, so yes, green sites first. And then, The other thing that I think I'm sure people know about Bill, but there's probably no one better at creating these artistic compositions, too. So there's a real, in my observation, artistic element to the way that Bill lays out these golf courses. And, of course, that extends to the talented people that Bill and Ben have had working for them for 25 years. Um, Jim Craig was the primary shaper at Sand Valley, Mm -hmm. but we also had um, Rod Whitman there for a few months, um, uh, really a lot of, uh, uh, Dave Axlin was there. Um, so we've had, we had a lot of people come through and put their little touches on it. Um, you know, once the routing was in place, so yeah, it's starts with the greens and then, and then from there, um, uh, yeah, I can tell you that there was probably on paper, I I, probably 20 different versions of the routing for Sam Valley, you know, and all of them having some common, you know, there were some spots that were anchored in from the beginning, but, but with Bill and Ben's process, you know, the plan changes all the time and, and even, even to opening day, because I remember it was interesting to hear Bill comment that not necessarily by design, but the golf course was laid out in a way that the numbering could be changed at any time. And I remember Bill saying that pretty early on, saying, well, this is, it's a bonus. Well, it's even better that you could this could be number one or this could be number 11. You know, there was that flexibility, even in the way that you numbered the golf holes at the mm-hmm. end. And I remember Bill being particularly pleased about that. Uh, so I guess if I had to say it, I—I I, I would I would. You know, the Other golf courses often get built with a kind of a singular design vision and I think Bill and Ben are very good at letting things evolve and not locking themselves into any solution until they have to, which also mirrors the way that Mike Kaiser and his sons work and that they keep everybody focused on the decision that we have to make today versus any type of master planning or thinking too far down the road, which you know, may or may not have anything to do with reality.
0: I'm assuming that, that that's a that's an appealing way to work for you going forward and I am also assuming I'm going to make the assumption that you'll get more opportunities to design your own golf courses. You did design a golf course on an old golf course but um I want to talk to you about Club Loch LaBelle which is about uh 30 minutes west of milwaukee in a town whose name i can't pronounce (laughs) i'm not from wisconsin
1: Uh, (laughs) or spell oconoma is the name oconoma
0: yeah but what i mean this this is really great you did have an opportunity to build four new holes and then atop the old this old golf course that had been in existence since gosh for uh 120 Uh, years yeah yeah and had a long, you know, rich history. It had gone into decline. Uh, new a new family uh, came in a few years ago and bought it and invested a lot of money and resources and love into the property to resurrect it. Some of the some of the holes were kind of underwater that you had to recreate some new holes over there too. But it's really a brand new golf course. You didn't get a chance to uh, walk a, a virgin site like Bill did and and uh, you know locate natural green sites and think about you know complex routing intertwining issues but you did have a chance to build new golf holes it is a fantastic golf course and it's public i encourage everybody who's listening if you're uh in the milwaukee area or in wisconsin at all you've got to go see this uh one thing i really like about it and i want to get your design thoughts on it is that it, it and i and I've, i sense that you know maybe your education as a as a golf course builder and and designer was probably heavily influenced by your time at at Sand Valley. How could it not be? And working with Bill and and observing that and working with David and observing that. And there are elements of that, that kind of sand, Sand Valley openness and, flexibility in the design at club lock labelle the, there's no prescription of the way the to it's kind of a modern thing there's you know there's no prescribed shot shapes there's no patterning the, the course is open the the hazards are placed in ways that you can kind of approach holes in, in different uh from different angles different lines of play you can take on uh, a boundary or a, or a creek and try to get an angle but you don't have to um the golf course breathes and i it, it sent it strikes me that this is kind of a um a modern or even postmodern way to design golf courses now that we've seen these great uh, open expansive sites being developed over the last 20, 25 years. And, and Locklebell has that kind of DNA in it. It, Are you aware of that? Or is that a conscious thing that you're trying to build in that, that flexibility and that just that, that a golf course that can breathe?
1: Um, Well, in the same way that I'm saying that, you know, we're recreating the Lido, because these were genius golf architects, a um, hundred years ago. Yeah. In my world, I'd be stupid if I wasn't influenced. And, in, and in I think many of us doing this are just following the lead. And in a lot of ways, um, <laughs> doing our best to, to imitate <laughs> the types of work that's being done by Bill, Bill and Ben and Tom and David and others. Um, so yes, heavily influenced by that, but, but maybe, as much as anything the, to, to what we just talked about, keeping the flexibility um, during the, the early phases of design allowed us to go in all kinds of different directions and not making any decisions too early or locking ourselves in just um, just for the certainty of knowing where things are going to go. Uh, Matt Morris is the owner at Lock Labelle, and he was um, approached by the town. They made this other land available where we could build four holes at least four holes on on new dry land and then potentially abandon the wettest holes on the existing golf course and and the golf course had has a long and you know remarkable history including uh a really interesting heritage with the early golf pros that they had and willie anderson and uh the smith family so there's this long heritage with the the golf course, but then it had become so wet, either over decades of the ground actually sinking or old pipes failing. um, The golf course had gotten to the point where it was not that enjoyable to play day to day because it was defined by uh, swampy conditions. So if So when the town approached Matt, who had always wanted to own a golf course, he's in the he's in the golf business, he provides um, the company is called Presswick Golf and they provide the nicest uh, garbage cans and tea receptacles and all the kind of furnishings that you would see at a golf course or a resort. Uh, Their company uh, builds out of recycled materials. And they've done that for a long time. So it was all, and they started in golf. So Matt wanted to own a golf course. This opportunity came up and, uh, it was just by chance because I was talking to them about a little putting green for their corporate headquarters, potentially. And this all happened at the same time. They said, well, why don't you come out and take a look at, at this golf course and, you know, what could it be? And I would say that, yes, I, um, you know, from those first discussions tried to take the approach to keep all things, all ideas and all, uh, all the different way, all the different directions it might move open and worked closely with Matt and his son, Tyler on several routing plans. We didn't blow up the entire property, but, um, we combined golf holes. Um, it's completely recognizable to what was there, but, but there's six or seven holes that are essentially on completely new ground. And, um, and we kept a lot of the, the, historical green locations that we, that we were aware of, but coming straight from sand Valley, I had had, you know, many years of going through that process and hopefully it, you know, it, it has worked out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. And, and, and I would say also that a lot of my credibility on working on golf courses comes from sand Valley. I mean, if people if people know that I worked on that, they're probably talking to me because they like sand Valley. So they're already, you know, seeking me out because they, they, they like what happened there. Even if I had very little to do with, um, you know, (laughs) the the, the end result, i I had something to do with it, but, but I think there's, uh, the people I've worked for over the past three or four years, um, like what's happening at sand valley and want to see if you can take some of those concepts and apply them to uh to more conventional properties so i think in in every way i'm asked to do that and then also you know just it's been my life over the past few years so yeah very influenced
0: yeah yeah and well, i mean you you have uh, work in the ground your own work you um, you, you just opened uh a 12 hole course at trappers run called 12 north uh, with Andy North, you, your work at Stevens point, um, is another point, but, but Locke LaBelle in particular is, is you, you're, I think you're being modest when you say, you know, you were riffing off or taking a, a steep influence from, from Bill Kaur or David Kidd or Tom Doak. One look at, at Locke LaBelle, I mean, it, it, you don't get the, I, I compared it to the Sand Valley just sort of in, in the playability aspect of it, but one look at it, I mean, there's a very strong point of view in that design, the the bunker arrangement, the the lines of play, and particularly the green complexes. You have to behold these things in person to understand uh, how some of them, and it's a great balance, some of them are, are, are more modest as well and have more of a historical feel, but some are just some of the most ambitious green sizes and, and putting contours that, that I've ever come across. You have... I tried to measure some of these out. I asked you when we played, you know, well, how big is this one? And you said I have no idea. But I mean, some of them, the, the fourth green, I think is is like over fourteen thousand square feet. I think fifteen measures out to over eleven thousand. Sixteen green is fifteen thousand square feet or more, and seventeen green is like twelve thousand, almost thirteen thousand square feet. And eighteen, I don't even know how you chart that one because it flows into the the putting course <laughs> oh, up above. I... That could be a fifty thousand square foot complex. You know, I mean, it's just it, these things are incredible, and they're so fun to play. They they uh, allow the the course to play so elastically and dynamically. Different the putting is fun, the hitting approach shots are fun. I mean, this, this you you have to own that and take credit for it. I'm telling you.
1: Well, I will. I'll gladly take credit for. Actually, I it's specific to those examples, I got to give Jimmy Cavesa, the superintendent, uh, the most credit on that because uh, number four, the green as it originally was laid out ends at the top plateau, it's still wild, but Jimmy had the thought, well, let's just mow the whole thing and mow the fairway down. Brilliant. And, and I thought, ah, I don't know about that. And, and it's ended up being people's, you know, favorite feature of the golf course. Cause it's so over the top.
0: And by the so, way, he, he worked with, with you in Oliphant for years, right?
1: Yes. I've known Jimmy for a long time now, probably almost 20 years and worked with him at Oliphant doing, um, I first met Jimmy in Jackson hole, Wyoming, we were working as just as construction contractors for tom fazio at uh, a place called uh, shooting star really a you know a beautiful over-the-top housing development you know millions and millions of dollars in real estate and all of that so so when i met jimmy he was doing um those types probably of- worked at pebble beach for years we did a lot of renovation work at pebble beach and then, you know, Jimmy's goal was always to build a place and stay, you know, with his family. And that opportunity presented itself at local bell in a way that hadn't before. So what, what ended up happening was we started construction. Jimmy was with me, you know, we're running the, we're doing the construction work and then Jimmy transitioned into be the full-time superintendent at uh bell and is, is still there thankfully and doing a great job. And, um, so like all these projects, you know, it never ends on the day you open it. You know, the superintendents carry on and, and do their thing. And, um, yeah, I think it's evolved, uh, you know, with some of those changes, like the putting green is now connected to 18. It's kind of a neat effect. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. The, the one interesting thing about, about, uh, you know, the design there is that Matt is a good player. All of his kids are good players. they, you know they win state championships, and you know, and and Matt wanted the golf course to be relevant not just now, but in the next ten and twenty and fifty years, and you know it's it's a pretty small footprint. It's not overly long, so how would you do that? Um, our solution we we ended up with over a hundred bunkers, which which you know there's lots of bunkers out there, but a lot of those were a result of you know, going back and forth with Matt and saying, Matt, you know, it's, I think we're asking too much here. I don't know if you want to narrow this down and him, you know, insisting that we, that we um, pay attention to where better players were going to hit it and and do our best to, to, to have some high points for everybody. And so I wouldn't have probably introduced some of the, you know, some of those bunkers are so deep. Some of them are, um, in crazy places. But I would say that tension between me saying, let's make this friendly and Matt saying, well, let's not, let's not, let's make sure that that people are paying attention. That tension is how you end up with what I'm happy to hear you describe as kind of a flexibility and, and that type of thing. And that, you know, again, is the, another lesson from sand Valley is watching bill use any type of input as inspiration, you know, in his world, he would say, they kind of laugh about it. If there's a pile of garbage in the middle of the fairway, they say, well, that's good enough. Let's just turn it into a bunker
0: yeah, or whatever
1: inspires you. And you can, you know, as a, as someone who's hired to, to lay out golf courses, you know, you, you also have someone who's paying you and there's a dialogue between you. And, um, even if it's not your idea, can't you use every idea as some type of inspiration to get where you need to go? And I think I'm a pretty stubborn person and I, I doubt I would have, um, you know, had that presence of mind if I hadn't seen Bill put that into action over and over again, whether it's a owner's suggestion or just something that pops up randomly in the landscape, just using everything as some type of inspiration. And, um, you know, so Matt pushed, pushed us in directions that we probably wouldn't have gone with some of the features. And I'm glad because, uh, people are having a lot of fun playing it. And, and even though the course record, I think is already 60, you know, it seems to be interesting enough for the audience that it's that it's found, which is, um, a lot of younger, um, guys that hit it a long way, you know, and, I don't know. I don't know what you thought. It's not an overly long golf course, but there are plenty of spots out there where you where you can um, you have to make a decision on driver or not, and, and and that's good.
0: I think it has the ability to be one of those golf courses that develops a cult following. You know, it, it, and there's this, there's that's a thing now that didn't probably exist even maybe ten years ago. Um, social media can do that. They can it can take a, a golf property and if you generate enough interest or or, or projected in the in the right way certain types a uh, certain demographic of golfer can really latch onto it sweeten's cove is uh, is the number one example of that but lock labelle has that essence to it that interest that unique quality to it there's enough out there and it's an it's a full as you mentioned a full 18 hole golf course but there's so much character and, and 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 quirk into it and the greens are so dynamic you probably screwed yourself forever working for Mike Kaiser because you know he likes modest the contoured greens and if he ever, if he ever sees these um you know hopefully hopefully Michael and Chris are a little more open to the to these shapes but they are they're wildly fun and i just know for myself as as not even as as a golf rider uh, just as a participant in the game that's what i look for i think it all starts with greens if you have fun dynamic greens that offer variety and, and creativity, you've got yourself the basis of a good golf course there. And Lac LaBelle, you, know, you could play it every single day and, and get a different experience and just walk around with a smile on your face. It's, it's that good.
1: Well, thank you. The, the, Matt wanted us to build you know, 18 memorable holes, which would be anybody's idea, but, but he was completely on board for making the place look visually as spectacular as we could. And as a business decision, um, you know, how are you going to get people interested in playing, um, you know, walk, you know, unless you push the boundaries a little bit. And so we took that approach and saying, we're going to make something really interesting, different than anything else around here. And, um, and, and the greens are wild, you know, not all of them, like you said, I think if, if, you know, there and in other places where we've worked, I'm proud that we built very extremely varied greens, you know, through a golf course. So you'd have like a Glenway where I'm at right now. I think there's nine really unique greens that aren't anything like each other. And I think, and that's great. Um, uh, but again, working for Michael Kaiser, yes, the, the, the mission out here was, uh, fun surrounds, wild contours outside the greens, but let's, let's keep the greens flattish. And that's where we've ended up, but they're gigantic. Um, So, so, um, that wasn't necessarily our mission at Loch LaBelle where, where we said, let's, let's, let's build something that people are going to have a, um, that that they won't be able to forget. And we've ended up, there's a couple of greens out there that are, that are, uh, pretty fun.
0: You mentioned variety too, in, in the green shapes and we'll, we'll kind of wind the podcast down after this, but there is variety, you know, the fourth green, that you just talked about how it cascades down that has like that old Mackenzie Gibraltar feel to it. The 17th green is actually pretty flat and it has a high and low section. And it turns out on the edges a little bit, but it's a completely different style of green. It's also large, but it's, it's, it's a different character. And then you have <clears throat> smaller greens on the golf course, like in the back or the middle of the, the first nine where, you know, you get uh five, six, seven eight back there, those greens are all really kind of proportional to the whole size. So it's, it is a wide variety of looks. And I think that adds to the, how compelling the golf course is. It's not just pow, 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 pow over the, you know, hitting you in the face with these wild shapes over and over again. It's, it's picking and choosing spots and mixing them into the appropriate landforms where they sit.
1: Yes, that would be the idea. You know, if you, if you, if you pull it off, you've got, you know, in my mind, like a green like 17, it's pretty severely pitched, but it's completely understandable. in that there's really only one variable. You kind of want to hit on the left side of the green and the ball is going to feed to the right. Um, you know, I couldn't tell you how many holes like that you want out of 18, but you don't want random contours on every green for 18 holes. I mean, I, you know, any golfer likes to be able to understand what they're being asked to do. And, um, so I would generally fall, uh, you know, I would, generally building greens with that thought that people are going to understand what they need to do, but there's also room for introducing two or three greens, maybe within 18 holes that you might have to play a few times before you understand what's going on. And maybe there is nothing understandable going on. Maybe there are more of the random type, uh, contours. I wouldn't take 18 holes of that, but again, it's like two different propositions within one round of golf. And maybe we got that balance right at LaBelle, but, um, Uh, that's, that's what we were going for. What, What you see at LaBelle also is a lot of distinct tiers and, you know, our thinking was that, uh, the golf poles can play very different depending on where the pin is from day to day. So a lot of that flexibility is handled with just the size of the greens, which are big, but I've always been a fan of, you know, some amount of distinct tiers, which, which means the golf pole plays completely different, whether it's in the front pin or a back pen or whatever it might
0: be. Well, I, I'm. I think people who play there, if they're anything like I am, are really interested to see more design ideas for you, and hopefully get that you get the, that chance uh, soon enough. The funny thing about talking to you today is, I thought, well, I'm going to try to keep this to an hour. I've been trying to kind of pare down the, the length of these podcasts, and here we are now, almost going on uh, two hours since we started. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you off the hook and ask a few questions, real quick ones, as we get out of here. The the first one is, you know, you, you mentioned that you lived in, in St. Andrews for a while. What are one or two links courses that a lot of people don't know about that, that you would highly recommend or look forward to going back and playing again?
1: Um well for for so I didn't live in St. Andrews, I lived in Edinburgh and I've and um but but was at St. Andrews quite a bit. Um and it's not a Lynx course, but I would point out to people that, uh, it's kind of a goofy golf course, but right in Edinburgh, if you're doing a trip to Scotland and you're getting off the plane, there's a course called Braid Hills, um, in town. Have you ever heard of Braid Hills?
0: I I can't say that I could lie, but I I don't know. I don't think I have.
1: I don't know if you'd ever, this, this would only be around for, you don't have time to get anywhere, but you could do it right off the plane, which we've done a couple of times. It's a golf course that's on the side of a hill right in town. And I've never seen anything like it, like people, you know, it's just crazy that there's a golf course there, but it's super interesting. And I think there's some quotes from Tom Watson saying that, you know, there's just nothing like it in the world. And so that's the first thing that pops up into my head when someone says, what's something in Scotland that no one talks about? I think Braid Hills is, is kind of neat. Um, for a course that people don't know. I mean, I think people know North Berwick. It's one that I would never leave off a list. It doesn't quite get enough. Um, exposure, There's courses like Pam Muir, which is on the rail line, I think near Carnoustie, which I loved. There's not 18 great holes out there, but there's some stretches in the, uh, on the edges of the property that are just super cool. Um, there's actually a book that I would point people to, um, it's called classic golf, what was it called? Classic golf courses of England and Scotland, I think, and it's by Donald Steele. It's an older book and I'm not sure if it's still printed, but that was my guide when I was in Scotland um, and England. I worked in England for a year. I got lucky and um, got a job with a contractor working around London for almost a year. So I used that book as a guide for where I should go. And I can tell you, it never pointed me in the wrong direction. So I would say if that book is still available and there's many others like that, um, uh, you know, There's, uh, uh, there's golf courses everywhere in Scotland. That's that's obvious, but you could, you could pull off on any, um, golf course that you encounter in the countryside of Scotland and you're going to have an experience that is unlike anything that you have here in terms of not just the golf courses might be very simple, but, um, the clubhouse and the simplicity of the whole operation. And very often you'll end up, um, this happened to me a couple of times where at places where there were caddies, you end up that your caddy is the club secretary or club president. You know, things like that happen all the time and not just at the places that we, um, that, that you read about.
0: What's the, what modern golf course that you've, you've seen or played has impressed you the most? What's your, what's what's the best one that you've seen that's, Modern, not a you know. Some everybody will say like Pine Valley or something like that. But so, but what's a modern course that you like?
1: Um, I was on a golf trip to Long Island a few years ago and was lucky to play Shinnecock and National Golf Links and some others. And one of the places we played was Friars Head, which I think is uh, it's It might be the prettiest golf course I've ever played in terms of the. Um, the vegetation and the textures and the way that the place is just presented as a composition. It's a beautiful golf course. Have you been there? to no, Unfortunately, um, well, hopefully you will get there because uh, as a modern golf course, I think, um, you know, this is what Bill and Ben and all these guys do so well. They build golf courses that look like they've been there forever, but that course in particular um, struck me as a, you just couldn't, you just couldn't get a better result. It's a, it's a beautiful place. We also went out to Friars Head to, to try to give ourselves some indication of what our natural areas could look like at sand Valley, because it's a lot of the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in this, it's in, a, uh, the sand barrens of, um, long Island it's on a similar sandy scrubby property. So we went out there to see what, uh, what type of ground covers we could expect to develop. And it still remains probably the template for, for sand Valley in that in 20 or 30 years, when it's fully mature, I expect you're going to see a lot of the same types of, um, you know, the same type of types of mature vegetation that we saw at Friar's Edge. but the golf course is spectacular.
0: I've asked that question to so many people on the podcast and for a, a long time, the most popular answer was Sand Hills, but Friars Head is beginning to catch up. I think I haven't done a tally lately, but those two golf courses in particular are kind of in the in the lead amongst responses. With Pacific Dunes probably being the the third most. Well, I, that's
1: the next one that I would say is Pacific Dunes, which I also think is like it. It just couldn't be better. You know, it's one of those places where you think, but it's just a ten out of ten. I haven't actually been to Sand Hills, which I'm embarrassed to say I've. I've canceled a couple trips for reasons that were so important I can't remember them now. Yeah, right. But um, but hopefully I will get there. But um, yeah, I hear that I hear the same thing about Sandhills too. Yeah.
0: All right, the last question for you is now that you spend so much time on the Lido build, what hole are you most excited to hit a ball on?
1: Uh I will have, it would have to be the channel hole, which is the number four, which Mm -hmm. is the one that's got the, the, the famous diagram, you know, of the little Island fairway. And then it's, it's got a lot going on. It's either a par five or a par four, um, with a lot of trouble. And that's the first thing we built. So it's been sitting out there the whole time. So that's what I've got my eyes on was playing that hole. Um, but they're all neat. Um, the 18th hole is going to be really cool. Um, uh, you know the the fourteenth hole, the short hole that that we were talking about earlier. That's turned out great. I don't know. We'll have to play it, but um, I'm I'm anxious to play the fourth hole and uh, see if anybody takes the shortcut. You know, see what
0: that's like. I'm glad you didn't say all of them. Thank you for that. You picked you picked one now the, on the channel <laughs> like the right. You know, like um, but yeah. the channel the, the the prevailing wind comes off the the left right so if if that's uh, the
1: wind the, it, yes but the wind is pretty variable out there so i think if you play it on multiple days there's a good chance you're going to get the, the general summer wind but it does it does shift around yeah, I'm gonna, a bit could be,
0: so my i guess i'm saying like if it's coming off the left it, it doesn't really influence your your choice do you hit the big fairway or the island you know if it's in your face you're going to take the the long way around if it's downwind you go for the island but if it's cutting across you, you really have to make a choice there yeah,
1: it you know it's one of those things where you never know if, it, if if going for the island is going to make any sense when you play it. Um, but it, there it sits. So some number of people are going to are going to go for it no matter what. So including me.
0: Yeah, the conversation is going to be I didn't I didn't fly two thousand miles to lay up. You no, know, I'm, go, yes. I'm going to go for the island. Yes. But the thing about that is the second shot is a is hard. I mean that's a that's a man-sized shot to get over that that fronting bunker and all the way up to the green even if you even if you cut the cut some yardage off i mean you still got to hit a great second shot
1: yeah it's one of the things the scale of it's different the whole golf course is different but also no one has played it yet but it appears to be a a pretty challenging golf course if you say that i mean we play the right tees you're going to be able to get around no problem but if you um there's plenty of real golf shots out there. And I, I remember reading early on some quote from, um, uh, Bernard Darwin about how the golf course, uh, was think like I said, it's something like a battlefield for the giants, you know? And that seems like exactly what's out there. There's once you've found fairway on that hole, you're not done. You then have to hit over a 20 foot deep bunker
0: yes <laughs> That's a good, well, yeah I, i'm just thinking about that and I'm, i went to silence contemplating that
1: and then and then you get on the green and it's a it's a great you know the greens themselves have all this character too so it's a it's a, a complex golf course and and nobody knows how it'll play until we do which will be next year
0: for a golf course that sits on a flat piece of land the lido is a mesmerizing golf property. When you see it, it will be familiar because we've seen these holes and these shapes before on other McDonald and Seth Raynor golf courses. And yet the size and inhibition of the way the course is shaped is something quite out of character and almost exotic. It's just one of those golf courses that you have to be on property and, and play it and feel it under your feet for it to seem real and comprehensible. I won't take up any more of your time. That was a lovely, lovely conversation with Craig Haltom. And that's the real beauty of podcasts is, is there's no time limit. It's conversations. It, you can explore subjects and you look up and all of a sudden two hours goes by and, and it flew by really. So uh, thanks, Craig. I told Craig afterwards that I took more of his time than, than I meant to. And I, I owe him a drinks or dinner or something. So I will pay him back for subjecting himself to, to my queries for, for that long. But I hope you hung in there and listened to all of it really appreciate you. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at FeedTheBall. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and and share it with your friends. Thanks to Craig Haltem. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this all over again, adios.